Hey guys, Lauren here, bringing you a special mini episode. So our episodes are supposed to come out every other week. So we cover roughly one interview and one build a month, with a couple of extras thrown in to placate my need for calendar symmetry. But, well, we made an exception for this one. If you're from North America, you're probably aware of chestnut in our popular media. Chestnuts roast on open fires in winter. A box of hair dye describes the color as chestnut. And an old, well-worn joke might be called a chestnut as well. It's ingrained in our culture. But have you ever seen them on the ground? When was the last time you bought one at the store? Personally, I think I bought water chestnuts for a salad once. All my other experiences were abroad. Mull on that while you listen to the following story and post your answer on social media using the hashtag chestnutpocalypse. Yes, I'm, I'm serious. Chestnutpocalypse. That's the episode. Okay, so once upon a time, <laughs> oh, going to be good. Um, so you guys, have you heard of the chestnut blight? No. Mm-mm. Okay, so there's this tree called the American chestnut that used mm-hmm. to be most one of the most common trees in the eastern United States. Uh, big old tree, hundred feet tall, easily, and like a single big tree could drop enough chestnuts to feed like a family of four for a few months. Jeez. Um, yeah, and like they're they're kind of weird for a nut tree because most nuts are like oily, but chestnuts are starchy. So like once you cook them, it's basically like kind of sweet brown rice is basically the composition of this nut. Mm-hmm. Um, so like our pop culture is filled with like we got chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Uh, a crappy joke is a chestnut. There's horses have like calluses on their legs and they call them chestnuts. Like they're supposed to be there because they look like chestnuts. Um, yeah. There's a chestnut street all over the place, right? In every town. Chestnut is the name of a color, a I've particular hair color or, nev- or coat color. I've never even questioned chestnut as a common tree, common nut, because it is so embedded into language and culture that I just assumed that I knew these things. And yet it does suddenly occur to me that I have never, never eaten one, seen right? one or eaten one. Same. <laughs> I did that it never, never occurred to me. Yeah. So we have a few now, like um, we have a lot of imports of like European and Chinese chestnuts because there are relatives on other continents. Um, Mm -hmm. That's usually say, I think I had chestnuts in Japan. Yeah. I had chestnut sweets in Japan. Yeah. So that's what it was. It was a different species that's native to Japan. And I think actually American chestnut trees got this disease from some ornamental imports of Japanese chestnut trees. Um, cause the Japanese chestnut tree can deal with it. And the American one was just like, what is this? I'm, I'm dead. I'm done. Um, so this disease spreads, it hit the United States in like 1904, 1906 ish, um, kind of like in the New York, Connecticut area. And then just spreads like wildfire. And by 1940, the last of the American chestnut trees were dead. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's just like total annihilation of the species. And, it's funny because like it doesn't kill the roots for whatever reason. And so there are still a lot of like chestnut trees out there that are technically alive. They'll send up shoots. And then within a few years, the shoots will get the disease and die back to the ground and it'll start over. So we have all these zombie trees. um, but they (laughs) Like the zombie minks. Yeah. But they can't reproduce. Like they can't grow old enough to actually reproduce. So the species is functionally extinct, Um, but we have all these zombie roots out there. Um, So, 
did they figure out like what it was, how it got there? Is it just in the air now? Yes. Um, so we've folks have been crossbreeding with like Chinese and European and Japanese chestnuts for a while to try and come up with some more resistant varieties. There's now folks doing like transgene and biojet biotech stuff. And we found in Europe, there is a virus that attacks the fungus and makes it no longer capable of killing a tree. So we have a lot of different ways of, of defeating this thing. Um, but it's just never really gotten traction. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that, but one is like, like humans are just resilient enough to be like a real problem. <laughs> like we just kind of lost a staple food crop and kept rolling. Where did um, it come from? This mad tree disease? Probably Japan. Like it's just, you know, like a normal disease to have there and the trees there have some resistance to it. And the American ones just didn't. Um, this really does just sound like a dystopian story, you know, people living yeah. in air bubbles and, and don't go out. Well, okay. This, I was going to say this sounds like a dystopian story. And then I realized this sounds like now, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, to that extreme where you hear about like the people were in the bunkers for 30 years and came out to test the air and the whole wave of the first population died and like, except trees and it mm-hmm. happened and it's kind mm-hmm. of oddly creepy. And now I feel bad for the trees. Yeah. And so it's funny because like the trees home range, like is uplands. Like it, it basically is Appalachia. Like this is the core of the trees range and extended out to the East coast and a little further South than that. But like Appalachia was the core of the range. And so like, especially folks who lived out there and were kind of like living on a more subsistence economy, number one, like the nuts were great for eating for people they were great fodder for pigs and other livestock. And so you could just let them run loose in the woods and, and come collect them later, which was not necessarily the greatest thing for like the rest of the forest itself. They're not a native species, but anyway. Um, and then also the timber was really ideal for building because it's strong, it's rot resistant, and it's also soft enough to work with hand tools. So it's like mm. the ideal tree for DIY shelter and furniture making. Um so basically like the biggest single source of food and shelter is gone. And that really helped push Appalachia onto like desperation work and out migration and coal mining is really the coal mine. Yeah. It's hard to imagine coal mining being as big a part of just Appalachian economy had that not happened. And there's the series of books called Foxfire, which is just like a lot of cultural preservation stuff. Like here's how we make this. Here's how we did that. Tell me some stories from mm-hmm. the old days. And folks who lived through that period, like, talk about it in these just apocalyptic terms. Like, you know, there's before and there was after. Um, And I think part of why we've been so good at forgetting it is because this mass extinction event occurred between, you know, 1904 to 1940, which was a period in which we were having, you know. Lots of world wars. Yeah, a pandemic. Depression. Right. There's a pandemic, a global depression and two world wars. We were busy. There was like so much other stuff to focus on. Um, mm-hmm. No one had time to, <laughs> to focus on the trees. Yeah. So like, I'm like, mm, this brings with a lot of things that are happening right now, like something this big and this bad can happen and you can just forget about it because you were busy. Uh, that's crazy to me. Um, mm-hmm. But they estimate about 4 billion trees died and when a big one can feed a family of four, like if all those trees were back today, they would make three times as much carbs as people in the United States alive today need to eat. Jesus. Need to eat or do eat? Need to eat. If we're talking do eat, like (laughs) then it would be like an even greater excess. Cause I don't know, like most of the corn in the U S like goes to like non feed, like non food uses. So like, yeah, it could, yeah, it's a big, it's a big amount of carbs that were getting made. 
see now deep in my soul, I'm seeing a book that I want to read. Um, and it is going, it would be a very traditional dystopian, you know, desolate landscape bands of, of, you know, roving people trying to survive, you know, killing each other ruins, you know, motorcycles and swords, half Mad Max, half bad land the badlands, like pure dystopian, every trope, but dryads. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like the ruins are of the great groves and, and, you know, they keep trying to, to nurture it back, but, but everything dies and they can only be like above the earth for so long. And yet in every way, every dystopian trope you could think of, but dryads right? in, in leather they call motorcycles and swords. Oh, <laughs> they don't call themselves dryads. They call themselves treeple. Oh. <laughs> no, I veto you. <laughs> I appreciate the attempt, Sarah. Thank you. Adrian has vetoed. <laughs> I veto you. No, so like funny story, speaking of like post-apocalyptic things. So like I didn't even find this out until a couple months ago. This is like a family history thing. So my mom's side of the family comes from coal mining Kentucky, right? Mm-hmm. So like my grandma passed away sometime in the last couple of years and I'm just like looking at her obituary because I'm like, oh, I need to like, just for the purposes of writing a book, you have to talk about where you come from and blah, blah, blah. And like, mm-hmm. JD Vance is like, oh, I'm a hillbilly. And I'm like, well, I guess we better address this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I look up my grandma and it's like, she was born in Harlan County, Kentucky. So I look it up. I'm like, holy shit, this explains so much about the family. So there's this thing called the Coal Wars and Harlan County, Kentucky was the hotspot. So like basically during the Great Depression, a bunch of coal miners, like just, you know, on and off throughout the depression, uh, were going on strike and, um, people didn't like that. And so they called the national guard and basically like gunned people back into the mines. And, um, (sighs) yeah. And so that's what my great, my, my grandma had left. Right. And like her dad worked in the coal mines, like he died of black lung, you know, um, so that's what she had left. And then like, she was also deeply mentally ill and, my family had always been like, oh yeah, there's like bipolar in the family. And I'm looking back at this and you're like, you know, her behavior sounds a lot more like PTSD, like not a mental health (laughs) professional, but I'm looking at this and I'm like, "Mm, okay, I'm getting some more insight into what all is going on here. (laughs) Yeah. So she was kind of messed up, like kind of a very difficult parent to have. So my mom is, you know, like she messed up my mom quite a bit as well. And then like that gets passed on and I'm just like, Okay, we're now going on like what our third generation of like unresolved trauma thanks to like a national guard maneuver. Like what the fuck? Like, I mean, generational trauma is a thing. Yeah, and like all probably tied back to the chestnut blight. It turns out. So this is like. Uh, so I found this out like two months ago, right? Um, <laughs> Jesus. So you've got like you've got all of this generational trauma in a family and in a society that stems from this one little thing. That's not a little thing, a big thing, but that stems from something that is the plant equivalent of a smallpox blanket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of a lot to contemplate, you know, like this is like my life and I have a hard time thinking about it. It's just like, this is kind of bigger than all of us, man. So, so much of what we go through, we like, we never realize that whole butterfly effect thing, right? Like it's just, everything is so much bigger than it ever seems in it at the micro level. And 
weirdly connected, but when you find those connections, those few times when you actually can, can chart the course, it's just like mind blowing. Mm. I think it's always happening all over the place, but it's just so mind blowing when all of a sudden you, you see it. When you can take that step back and look at the thread that was pulled here that caused the ripples in the fabric down the line. Mm-hmm. Crazy, right? A full species yield demise in less than 40 years, and we were too busy to save a staple food crop. Makes me wonder what we're missing or ignoring now. I mean, like besides global warming. Okay, so tweet, gram, or Facebook us about this episode with the hashtag chestnutpocalypse and tell us how you'd incorporate a blight and or resulting generational trauma into a story or world. We're also on Discord, where you can chat and brainstorm with fellow authors. Find the link on our website, www.storysoilpodcast.com.